Hello and welcome to episode 41 of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Adam. In today's case, we head back to October 2004 to examine a gang attack in Hoxton, East London, which, as you may know, is the hipster capital of London and at the very heart of the UK's tech startup community. Before we begin the case, I would just like to say a really big thank you to my Patreon supporters this week. That's Victoria Thorne, Jackie Parker and Karen Clyde. I really appreciate your support and I hope you enjoy the bonus content. I'm delighted that today's show is sponsored by Harry's. As regular listeners will know, I use Harry's myself and, like my delicate personality, my skin is also sensitive and Harry's is just great for sensitive skin. And now you can get a Harry's shaving set worth £11.50 delivered to your door for just £2.95, which covers the cost of postage and packing. Please just head to harrys.com slash truecrime. And for me, it isn't just about the great shave. As you probably know, I'm not so good at being told what to do and following rules when I don't agree with them. The founders at Harry's share that philosophy. Andy and Jeff were fed up with being overcharged for razors, and that's why they started their own company. So get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for just £2.95. You can support this podcast and get the trial set delivered to your door, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com slash truecrime right now. That's harrys.com slash truecrime. In October 2004, Robbie Williams topped the charts in the UK with radio, just ahead of Eric Pridd's prize, I think it's prize, wasn't it, with Call On Me. Now, I might not be able to pronounce his name, but I remember the video. Didn't you just love the way the video for that song explored modern existential thinking? Really is a reaction against traditional philosophies such as rationalism, empiricism and positivism that seek to discover an ultimate order and universal meaning in metaphysical principles within the structure of the observed world. Yeah, it was a great video. In the US, the top spot was taken by somebody else whose name I can't pronounce, Chiara, I think, featuring Petty Pablo with goodies. In the world at this time, British hostage Ken Bigley of Liverpool was beheaded by militants in Iraq. The Scottish Parliament building was opened in Edinburgh and Tony Blair announced his intention to resign as Prime Minister of the UK if Labour won the next general election, which they did. In sport, I appreciate I'm very lucky watching the superior quality of the mighty Leeds United on a regular basis. But another half-decent player made his debut this month. 17-year-old footballing wizard Messi made his debut for Barcelona against Espanyol. In motor racing, Michael Schumacher won the F1 Drivers' Championship for the year. And in the US, the Boston Red Sox won the World Series for the first time in 86 years. And so on to today's case. For residents of the UK, the country of Ethiopia really came to the public's attention in 1984 when BBC journalist Michael Burke filed a report where he talked about a biblical famine. His words and the images of starvation led to the report going viral. That was in the days before going viral even existed. And his report was picked up and shown by over 400 TV stations around the globe. This report directly resulted in the new concept of celebrity fundraising and was directly responsible for the Live Aid concert 
which changed so much. However, the problems in Ethiopia, although receiving much less publicity, didn't ever go away. Many residents, although proud to be Ethiopian and loving the beauty and the culture of that great country, have left since, aiming for a better or maybe an easier life in the West. One of these people was Asayas Kasahun. He came to Islington in North London with his brother from Ethiopia, aged just 11, searching for a new life. He was fostered by a family in Hoxton, just to the east of London's financial district, going to school at nearby Highbury Grove. Forward wine 10 years, and Asayas was a popular man locally who worked as a trainee chef. He lived in Godfrey House on the St Luke's estate in Bath Street, which is just behind the world-famous Moorfields Eye Hospital. At around 8.30pm on Monday, October 11th, 2004, 21-year-old Asayas was chatting to friends, including 19-year-old Louis Colley, outside Summerfield Supermarket on Old Street, near the junction with Bath Street. Suddenly, they were approached by a gang of youths, many on BMX bikes. This gang, sometimes known as the Hoxton Biker Boys because they rode BMXs, had let it be known that they were after Louis after a recent incident outside the Toffee Park Youth Club on the estate a few days earlier. During this incident, Louis was accused of staring down one of the group. Although to you and me this may seem like nothing, in London gang culture, even the most innocuous actions can have horrendous consequences. And the Hoxton Biker Boys were set on revenge. Just picture the scene that evening of around 30 to 40 young males and females all gathered at the estate, armed with spiked baseball bats and knives and wearing similar dark clothing, scarves and hoodies. As the gang approached Louis and the punches rained down on him, Asayas jumped in to try and protect his friend. Massively outnumbered, both Louis and Asayas were pushed to the ground and attacked. And as is so often the case, the actual violence was all over in a flash, and as the crowd dispersed, the two men managed to escape to the safety of the Shell petrol station just over the road. It was only once they were at the petrol station that it became apparent just how seriously injured Asayas was, and he quickly collapsed with blood pouring from a wound in his head. Tragically, he died two days later, despite emergency surgery at the Royal London Hospital. The pathologist would later describe the cause of death as a two-inch penetrating injury to the side of his skull and brain. It was probably caused by a knife or potentially a modified baseball bat, but the pathologist was unable to reach a clear conclusion because of the difficulty in distinguishing marks left by surgery from those caused by the weapon which killed him. Due to the very nature of gang violence and the reluctance of gang members to talk to the authorities, the police knew that this wasn't going to be a straightforward investigation. The incident itself was chaotic, with a large number of young people, poor lighting and poor quality CCTV. The key had to be find those people who would talk to the police, so they immediately started to interview as many people as possible. The inquiry was led by Detective Chief Inspector Michael Broster, You may recall the name Mick Broster, who also led the inquiry into the mysterious death of body-in-the-bag MI6 agent Gareth Williams. The inquiry quickly got results, with seven youths arrested over the next ten days, including two who were thought to be the main players in the gang, 20-year-old Bullebeck Ringbiong and Sam Hallam, aged 17. Sam Hallam was born on the 9th of July 1987, 
At the time of his arrest, he was working as a kitchen fitter with his dad. Billy planned to apply to join the British Army when he was a little older. He had two older brothers and one younger sister. But prior to his arrest, he was of good character and he'd never been charged with or convicted of any offence. In September 2005, the murder trial began at the Old Bailey before Judge Richard Hone QC. Along with Hallam and Ring Biong were seven other youths, including four 17-year-olds. At the close of the prosecution case, the trial judge directed that four of the defendants be acquitted on the murder charge. A fifth defendant later had the charges against him withdrawn by the prosecution, so this left Bullebeck, Ringbiong and Sam Hallam. During the trial, QC David Hatton told the jury that Louis Colley had a very lucky escape, before talking of the bravery of his friend Assayas, saying that one reason that Louis Colley had managed to survive was because his friend had tried to intervene. In doing so, for his trouble, he was stabbed to death. The case for the prosecution didn't appear particularly strong, just the evidence of two witnesses and no forensics or CCTV evidence. Hallam in particular strongly protested his innocence, claiming that although he knew people on both sides from the local area, he was not there, and he didn't even hear about the murder until two days later. The key witness giving evidence against him, Phoebe Henville, changed her account several times, and when challenged at Hallam's trial in cross-examination as to why she identified him, she said, I just wanted someone to blame. The other key witness, Bilal Kelfer, retracted his evidence at the trial, saying he could not positively identify him. Bilal Kefler also stated that he only named Hallam because he'd been given his name by Phoebe Henville. But the prosecution also claimed that Hallam's alibi of playing football with his friend Timmy Harrington wasn't valid. When questioned, Harrington denied this, saying he hadn't seen Hallam all that week. But in court, Harrington was an unconvincing witness. He explained this by saying his memory was poor because he smoked a lot of cannabis. The jury came back with their verdict on the two men. Guilty. Judge Richard Hone, passing sentence, said, It is especially sad when the best receives the worst in life. Ringbyong was told he would be held in custody for at least 15 years, and Hallam was ordered to be detained for a minimum of 12 years. At last there was justice for the family and friends of Asayas Kasahun, who had suffered such a violent, unnecessary death on the streets of East London. However, although the evidence against Ringbyong seemed strong, there were nagging doubts even expressed in court about the conviction of Sam Hallam. Hallam himself couldn't believe that he'd been arrested and charged, let alone found guilty. When witness Bilal Kelfer had said in court that Sam had not been involved in the fight, and the other witness, Phoebe Henville, was less than sure that he'd been involved, he was convinced he'd be found innocent. He later told the Mail newspaper, When Bilal retracted his statement, and Phoebe said she wasn't sure, I thought it was going to be thrown out. Everything was in my favour. I thought the case had collapsed. On the last day I packed all my stuff and took it to court because I thought I was going home. It was the worst day of my life, he said. When they announced the verdict, it felt as if my life was over. I couldn't stand up. Everything went blurry and I was shaking. And then my own lawyers told me I had no grounds of appeal, so I thought, that's it. And from the court he was taken to Feltham Young Offenders Institution in West London. 
If you've read my blogs or followed me on social media, you will know my views on these horrific places where for some reason that's beyond me, we still feel it's okay to send our children. And in the UK, Feltham is just the absolute worst. I think it was at Feltham recently where even an assessor was attacked while he was there. It was a tough environment, said Sam with a shudder. Every day was awful. There may have been worse days and better days, but even the best days were terrible. The sooner that place is shut down, the better. I think the Johnny Cash song, San Quentin, sums up my thoughts on all of these institutions. Friends and family of Hallam approached Paul May, who'd played a prominent role in the high-profile and successful campaign to free the Birmingham Six. And after meeting Hallam's mum, Wendy, he agreed to attend a public meeting in the community to discuss the campaign to free Sam. I expected a few people to be there, May said, but when I turned up, there were more than 200 people inside. They were friends, neighbours, members of the family, people in the community who knew Sam. And that was the thing that struck me. They were from his community. They knew Sam Hallam. They'd known him since he was a child and they knew he wasn't the sort of guy to get involved in something like this. Matt Foote, Hallam's lawyer, said, The whole community knows he wasn't there. It's a solid working class community. And people don't like it when things go wrong like this. It becomes a sore which affects them all. This case should never have gone to a jury. This is what it leads to. Innocent people being put inside. But this optimism seemed misplaced when in 2007... Hallam's appeal was dismissed. May knew that the only way to get the appeal taken seriously was for the Criminal Crimes Review Commission, or CCRC, to investigate. And the only way to do this was to produce new evidence, because as far as the police were concerned, the case was closed. Using the willingness of the local community to help, May was able to find nine witnesses who'd been at the scene, who knew Hallam, and most importantly were prepared to stand up in court and say that he was not present at the time of the attack. But this sort of activity takes time, and correcting a potential miscarriage of justice is not a quick activity in the UK. In 2008, May submitted an application to the CCRC, detailing all his evidence, which was assigned to investigator Glenn Matheson. Meanwhile, while Sam Hallam was still languishing in jail, other events happened outside. In 2010... Sam's father, Terry, took his own life, aged just 56. Sam's mum, Wendy, placed this tragedy purely due to the pressure of dealing with their son's imprisonment. This was, of course, devastating for all the family, but particularly so for Sam, who'd been very close to his father, even working with him at the time of his arrest. Sam was also behind bars when his grandma, Dolly, died, and then in February 2012, when his other grandma, Audrey, died of cancer. The prison service refused to let him attend her funeral. I struggle with this, and I suggest that prisoners should be allowed to say their goodbyes to close family members. Don't you agree? Back at the CCCR, wow, that's almost an Elton John song, investigator Glenn Matheson studied the evidence provided by May and requested all case details from the Met Police. Astonished by what he was reading, he saw key documents that hadn't been disclosed by the Crown Prosecution Service to Hallam's defence team, which showed that although it was rumoured that a Sam had been present at the fatal attack, that Sam wasn't Sam Hallam. It was another Sam who also had close links with Ringbiong, 
the other man accused of murder. This led the CCRC to ask Thames Valley Police to carry out an investigation into all aspects of the case. And this investigation was led by Detective Chief Inspector Steve Tolmey. In this podcast, as you'll recall, we've heard about some outstanding police work, but sadly, also some rather pathetic, incompetent work, and this case today falls very much in the second category. The Thames Valley team discovered worrying aspects of the Met Police inquiry. One area was that the Met inexplicably did not carry out cell site analysis of Hallam's phone, which could have clarified that he wasn't at the attack. They also did not trace the content on his phone, saying they were not able to do so, as it was a new model, which was plainly just ridiculous. All they needed to do was turn the phone on and look at the photographs on his phone to see that his alibi stacked up. The Met also did not disclose another man, Tyrone Isaacs, who'd been named as present at the scene, was in possession of a broom handle with a nail in one end. Isaacs was also in possession of a mobile phone with no back, and Louis Colley told police he was in possession of such a phone when the attack took place. Forensics found a small dark hair and debris that could include skin flakes around the nail on the broomstick. But unfortunately, by the time Thames Valley finally had it examined in 2009, it proved impossible to isolate a DNA sample to see if this matched Asaeus. Isaacs was interviewed at his home, refused to comment and was released. Just 14 months later, Isaacs was arrested and later convicted of possessing a Mac-10 submachine gun, two handguns and ammunition, and dealing crack and heroin. Thames Valley Police found the Met Police investigation was chaotic and uncontrolled. There was flimsy and unreliable evidence pointing to Sam, and this wasn't investigated further. There was also evidence ignored relating to other suspects, and the record-keeping was poor to non-existent, which meant it was impossible to see the reasons behind these decisions. Indeed, Chief Inspector Broster, who was leading the case, failed to follow National Police guidelines on how to sift and record evidence and did not read witness statements. Broster did not comply with an interview request from his colleagues at Thames Valley Police and failed to answer some written questions. One explanation for this inadequate policing was that Broster was leading 15 simultaneous major inquiries, most of them murders. Investigator Tolmey of Thames Valley Police made it clear that this was an impossible caseload, however good an investigator he was, saying, In the early stages, a case like this should take up 100% of your time. You can't afford to be dealing with anything else. That should be taken into account by the bosses. They should ensure you clear your calendar for as long as it takes. The CCRC referred the case back to the Court of Appeal. The Statement of Reasons by the three CCRC commissioners explaining their decision to refer the case back to the Court of Appeal, also criticised the Met Police. They said it was a poor quality investigation, while the record-keeping, in their words, was just a disaster. There was simply no control over this investigation, said one commissioner. Not because of dishonesty, but poor management and staff shortages. Interestingly, and maybe surprisingly, Broster was later promoted to a detective superintendent in the anti-terror squad. But the acceleration of his career came to an abrupt halt when he was again criticised by the coroner in the Gareth Williams trial. If you recall, the MI6 officer found in the bag. 
for failing to disclose evidence and again being lacklustre in pursuit of lines of inquiry. Paul May commented on this news saying, It's remarkable that exactly the same criticism that the coroner had of the officer in the Williams inquest are precisely the words we would use about the investigation into this murder. The whole investigation had a casual approach to disclosure and it led to an injustice which only now, seven years on, is hopefully about to be righted. In July 2011, the CCRC referred the case to the Court of Appeal. Remarkably, despite all the new evidence, the Crown Prosecution Service insisted that they intended to fight the appeal, so it wasn't until 10 months later, when in May 2012, the case finally came to the court. Astonishingly, it was only at the very last minute that the CPS finally saw sense, dropped their opposition, and Sam's conviction was quashed. Finally, after wasting eight years of his life in prison, at the appeal court, Sam was free to resume his life as a free man. Outside the court, speaking to the Mail on Sunday newspaper, his mum Wendy said, I knew this would happen. He should never have been in there. My family has gone through hell. It's like we were all being tortured. Sam told the paper that he doesn't yet know how I've changed until I settle down. I'm not going to. And for now, I don't have a clue what I'm going to do. He added, In prison you know when dinner time is, when you're going to bed and when you're getting up. Now I have choices and I don't know what I'll be doing in 10 minutes, let alone tomorrow. Back home, surrounded by his family and the five close friends who continued to visit him every month of his spell in prison, he said he was starting to feel better. I thought it was going to feel strange, sleeping in a proper bed, he said. It didn't. Last night I had a bath for the first time in more than seven years. It was wonderful. But at the same time he'd missed so much. When I was arrested, my little sister Daisy was eight. Now she's a young woman about to go to college. So much has changed. And what of the friends and family of Asaius? A close friend of Asaius, who wished to remain anonymous, told the local Islington Tribune, We were all happy they let Sam out because he was an innocent man, but we deserve an apology. At least he gets to restore his life. We have no apology. We are still grieving about Asaius' murder. Where is the justice? Where is the help for the victim's family? His brother is suffering with all of this in the media. All I am saying is, think about the victim. And I think that's something we'd all agree with, isn't it? So what do you make of what you've heard today? It was a glimpse of London gang culture, where an apparently small incident led to violence and murder. Appalling police work, leading to a terrible miscarriage of justice. And so many lives destroyed by the events. There are no winners in this story, are there? At least he is free now, but Sam Hallam lost eight years of his precious youth and his father to suicide. Someone else who suffered a miscarriage of justice was Patrick Maguire, who you may recall was wrongly convicted over an IRA bombing as a teenager, and he spent four years in prison. He told the BBC, My biggest sentence started when I was released, and Sam will have to go through this too. What it's done to him mentally, I honestly don't know. I still go for counselling once a week after all these years, and I'm 51 now. He continued, You don't get over things like this lightly. 
there are bruises that will never heal. It's like being stuck on the moon for seven years and then suddenly drop back on Earth. In prison you can go all day and take only 50 steps and now Sam can go anywhere he wants in the whole world. I woke up this morning, pulled back the curtain and thought, wow, Sam will be doing this too, only there won't be bars in the way. But in a way, Sam had the easiest job. When you're in prison, you walk from A to B and follow routine. It's the family who are having to do that campaigning and fight that battle. When he was released from prison, Patrick Maguire produced a statement that read, I don't want anyone else ever to suffer what I've been through. And today, listening about Sam Hallam, I wonder how many more innocent people are languishing in our cramped prison cells. And what of Asaias' family? As well as their loss, they are left wondering if the people who killed their precious son will ever be brought to justice. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the UK True Crime weekly podcast. Please head to our Facebook group to discuss this case and anything else connected with UK True Crime. Or to support the show and listen to six bonus episodes for just £3 a month, please head to Patreon slash UK True Crime. Until we speak in on Tuesday, cheerio.